and welcome to this audio article by ESCP Business School, produced in partnership with the Commercial Department of the Financial Times. You're listening to the Director's Cut for The Choice, the new media powered by ESCP. Brexit, the pandemic, vaccines, the Great Reset. Together, they may have placed Europe at a crossroads. And if so, to where are we headed? A new Europe? A redefined Europe? A bigger Europe? A more united Europe? I'm Matthew Sansom, and joining me today to discuss those topics, and possibly answer them, who knows, are Simon Mercado, Dean of ESCP London, and Andreas Kaplan, the newly appointed Dean of ESCP Paris, and also the Dean of ESCP Berlin. Andreas, I'm going to start things off with you, given you've got one foot in each of the two biggest European economies. Could you give us a little insight into how you see the current political and economic landscape on the continent and how it may have changed over the past 12 months? I think that uh, both economies obviously are quite impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. If we talk about European Union, obviously they are inclined to work even more together now than before, which uh, is a good thing for the European Union. Simon, how do you think the EU has performed during the pandemic? I think the reality is, is that we are already in and sinking deeper and deeper in to an unprecedented recession. Uh, It's a matter of fact that the second wave, especially of lockdowns, has devastated business across Europe. There are varying estimates. People are talking about it being two to three years until the European economy comes even close to its pre-pandemic level. So I think the central issue is the economic cost and blow of the pandemic. And uh, yes, the EU, as Andreas has indicated, is pulling together a landmark recovery package, something in the tune of 750 billion euros. That will help and, and assist the European economies and business groups uh, and companies generally respond to this challenge. But the challenge is unprecedented. On top of the impact of the pandemic, of course, we have the effects of Brexit. So uh, we feel like we are sailing into stiff headwinds. Well, if I, if I may add, just to the uh, 750 billion euros, I think this is one of the few positive effects of the pandemic, because as Jean Monnet already said a couple of decades ago, Europe is forged or will be forged in a crisis. Okay, gentlemen, I'm going to ask you to give me marks out of 10 for the EU for its behaviour and management of the pandemic. I don't think the European nations individually or collectively have necessarily enhanced their brand or reputation with their management of of the pandemic. It's a different matter if you talk about the science and the innovation behind the pandemic, which will ultimately be our route out of this situation, where clearly uh, European scientists, European pharmaceutical companies, um, AstraZeneca and others are playing absolutely a pivotal role. I wouldn't be so negative about the the, uh, management of the pandemic of the European Union. First of all, that they ordered together uh, the vaccines uh, or the vaccine doses and that they also did come up with a distribution plan. Honestly, I would not answer your question either as Simon did on a scale of 1 to 10, but I would probably be a little bit more positive. I mean, it looks a certain way in the moment. It can look very different in 12 months' time. I think a lot is yet to be proven. But I do feel on balance that when people think about Europe and the pandemic, they think about 
globally high rates of infection, ultimately quite questionable management of the virus and the pandemic. And that's probably what sticks right now. But we'll see how things look in a year's time, hopefully a good deal better. Indeed, I think we can all agree on that. Looking further ahead, Andreas, how much of the success of the bloc falls into the hands of the French and the Germans? Am I right in saying that when France and Germany work well together, Europe as a whole advances and performs better? I think uh, you're completely right. I can tell you a little anecdote of an EU MP, Member of Parliament, who told me once that whenever uh, France and Germany agreed on something, uh, then the other uh, countries, member states, uh, would be a lot easier to convince. And he was not talking uh, about uh, the respective size and power of uh, Germany and France within the European Union, but rather about their cultural differences. Maybe another an- anecdote uh, quickly. If I explain to somebody the differences between uh, uh, Germany and France, I always refer to this one a TV show, which I think is actually English uh, originating, which is uh, called Farmer Wants a Wife. Now in France, this TV show is called L'Amour et dans le Pré, uh, Love is in the Meadow, whereas the exact same TV show in Germany is called Bauer sucht Frau, Farmer Searches Woman. So you see uh, France a lot more romantic, emotion-driven, whereas Germany is a bit more to the point and uh, functional. And this is exactly the same in their leadership style. I don't doubt that the French and the German economies will remain at the very heart of the European economy and its future prospects. I think it really doesn't matter what metric you you select, you'll, you'll see evidence of the continuing centrality of the French and German partnership, uh, economically, commercially, and, and I would probably say politically too. But I do think it's a different Europe. I don't think we're in the, the latter stages of the, the 20th uh, century where that uh, partnership or access was the fundamental driver of European growth and innovation. Yes, you can look, for example, at the FT1000 list of fastest growing companies in Europe, you'll still see that most winners come from Germany, France isn't far behind. But you'll see, if you look at that list of of Europe's fastest growing companies, you'll see that it is very diverse. You've got the UK and Italy in the big four there with France and Germany. And and outside the 70% of companies that those four countries uh, claim, you see a number of fast growing companies in Europe from right across the continent, west to east, fast growth companies in cities like Milan, Warsaw, Vilnius, really emerging as key key centers for for new venture creation, startups and scale-ups. And I think we've seen a sort of democratization in many ways across Europe of of, of startups. And uh, I I think the, the diversification of the economic contribution of countries in Europe, for me, is notable to the point where perhaps in uh, economic and commercial terms, the the French-German coupling may not be as critical as it once was. Politically, culturally, I mean, that's a, a much broader question. I, I completely agree with uh, Simon on the diversity of, of innovation. And I think even there's many other countries a lot more innovative uh, than France and Germany. Just look uh, in terms of digitalization and the small country, Estonia, which is so much advanced in, in, in the digitalization, digital transformation. Germany and France are 
totally lagging behind on, on these examples uh, we have in the European Union. There's an old saying that goes two's company, but three's a crowd. So with Britain gone, leaving France and Germany as the bloc's two economic powerhouses, how much easier does it make it for Europe to do business and to come together at this time? Well, I think mean, first of all, Maddie, we're talking about France and Germany as sort of economic powerhouses uh, in Europe. You have to put the UK in with the two, I, I, again, by whatever metric you may choose. I mean, you're not forgetting London is in, it remains the financial capital of, of Europe. It's uh, increasingly established as a tech capital. Now, the, the Brexit process represents a major disruption to the established order. Um, and for many of us, an unwelcome one. I mean, there are perhaps opportunities attaching to this for Britain to globalise and reset its relationships, but most of us will see a regressive step in, in the sort of exit of the UK from the single market. But the UK uh, does uh, have a, a great opportunity to work closely with its EU friends and partners on green leadership and digital leadership. Andreas, we now have a man in the White House who has possibly slightly more Europhile tendencies than his predecessor. What does that mean for Europe and the way it wants to project itself towards the rest of the world? You're going to be surprised about my uh, response, I think. Um, uh, Joe Biden definitely, or the Biden administration definitely, is easier to work with uh, than the Trump administration. There is uh, no doubt about that. Then uh, I would be very careful uh, about um, saying now everything is uh, perfect because uh, Joe Biden is definitely not going to reverse all the decisions uh, uh, taken by uh, Donald Trump. So there is uh, now a terrorism place and I would be surprised if uh, Joe Biden would reverse all these uh, tariffs because in a, in a certain way it's very advantageous uh, to uh, to the US. And uh, then I also uh, would be careful because for Joe Biden, Europe is not uh, his priority. It's definitely China. Uh, and uh, so Europe I mean, this is also a, a signal or a sign of, of uh, European leadership maybe not being that strong uh, since uh, if the US uh, takes uh, China as its priority. Now, um, where you may, may be surprised is that I say that uh, Donald Trump's administration had a big advantage uh, for the European Union because it was the first time in a long time that the European Union needed to work together and needed to um, assume uh, a certain uh, leadership because uh, they saw that the US uh, would not be the partner uh, which it was historically. And in order to have a European identity, uh, you need to differentiate yourself from other world regions. You cannot only compare single uh, member states with each other, but you need to differentiate you from uh, other world regions, China and the US. And this was definitely easier to differentiate you from a Trump administration than now from a Biden uh, administration, which is uh, a lot closer to the European Union indeed. Yeah, I think this is a really good question, Matt. And I think we just have to control our excitement and our enthusiasm a little bit here for, for a change that is no doubt very welcome to the greater majority of us. But, you know, I guess it's a reminder that the last time that there was a true liberal uh, president in the White House, in, in, in Barack Obama, the, there was an agenda 
that proved very difficult to execute uh, because of the balance of power within the Senate and, and, and Congress. And, and, uh, and Biden's going to have the same, the same challenge in affecting uh, what is, a, broadly speaking, a liberal agenda. Uh, and one, in many ways, better attuned to, uh, to the priorities that we have here uh, in the UK and on the continent uh, in Europe. There's also the point, and uh, Andreas makes it well, that it's very difficult to quickly and, and fundamentally reverse the direction of, of, of US policy over the last few years. Um, the US has uh, really abandoned its uh, sort of leadership position on free trade through uh, Trump's sort of neo-protectionist America first policies. And although I'm sure Biden does not subscribe to them, I'm sure Biden and his team are multilateralists and uh, believers in free trade, they're also under incredible domestic pressure to protect uh, uh, ailing U.S. industries and, and, and to support a U.S. economy which is mired in a, in a, in a deep um, pandemic-linked recession. So I'm, I'm not convinced that we'll see dramatic change on, on trade liberalization, tariffs, etc. We'll still see evidence of tension in the US-EU relationship over subsidy, uh, subsidies and uh, intellectual property matters, standards, uh, for example, in food uh, production and exports. But I do think there are areas like the environment, like the green agenda, where there'll be a very, very quick coming together of the interests uh, and, and ambitions of American and European leaders. I want to pick up on that and ask Andreas, why does the Green Agenda offer so much opportunity and hope for Europe at the moment? What can it do for the rest of the world? Well, I'm, uh, I'm gonna, gonna say it in the words of Ursula von der Leyen, who said uh, the Green Deal is uh, uh, Europe's man on the moon uh, moment. Uh, so in Europe, uh, this uh, sustainability uh, question was always more prominent than in, in other uh, parts of the world. And uh, now it's also a, a very uh, promising future area for the economy. And so now for Europe, it's a big possibility, opportunity to advance quickly in this sustainability area. And if you want to have a European identity, and I think for Europe it's absolutely necessary in order to move forward, to uh, create and uh, improve and strengthen this European identity, you need to differentiate yourself from other world regions. And uh, with uh, the sustainability uh, green economy uh, question, you are, or Europe is going to be a lot different from China and uh, also from the US. Even if I agree with Simon that uh, obviously with Joe Biden having gone back into the Paris Agreement uh, just, uh, I don't know, a couple of days or even one day after after uh, being in office is, is a, a huge sign that uh, also the US wants want to improve in this uh, green uh, area and this sustainability question. Yeah, I agree with Andreas. I think in this very changed world that we find ourselves in, uh, in a world where there is an, a certain vacuum uh, in terms of uh, leadership, uh, Europe has an opportunity. If we are serious about climate neutrality in 2050, if we are serious that we can go not just meet but go beyond our existing Paris Agreement goals, uh, then Europe really does have the ability to put a leadership stamp uh, on this, uh, and Europe's Green Deal can become uh, a Green Deal for the wider world. There are 
barriers to that, inevitably. I do think this is one area where Europe can really make its mark over the next uh, 20 or 30 years. I do believe that green leadership, digital leadership, social leadership, regulatory leadership and trade leadership is the platform on which Europe needs to build its brand, its image and evidence its contribution uh, to the world. Simon, whilst Europe may well have started to lead already in those areas, has it set out its stall formally and said, this is our vision, this is where we're going, and if not, why not? How important would it be for Europe as an entity to feel like an entity, to have that collective vision? I mean, I think it's trying to do so. I mean, if you look at the European Commission's recent work and statements, its new industrial strategy, you know, these themes and priorities are, are, are woven in, particularly this sort of twin transition uh, notion around uh, green and, uh, and digital uh, leadership. The problem is how much does that capture the public imagination? How much does it translate into a meaningful directing uh, policy framework for, for, for business? Uh, and I think that is a long way from being uh, evident. And I think the challenge now for, for European uh, governments and for European businesses is to, is to bring two things together, to bring together the evidence of technology-driven innovation coming from startups and established corporates on the one hand, marrying that with supportive, meaningful action on the part of, uh, of governments, and uh, multinational agencies. I, if I may add, I, I totally agree with uh, Simon. It's always uh, difficult to have a strong uh, common vision if uh, you need to make a compromise out of uh, 27 uh, member states uh, where everybody has, uh, at least for the uh, important questions, a veto. Uh, so to have a really strong uh, common vision, I think we, uh, or Europe, the European Union, would have to move towards uh, the qualified majority uh, instead of uh, veto or uh, decision at uh, unity. Although Europe has uh, the capacity and the capability, for example, to be at the forefront of the next generation of frontier technologies, uh, everybody's trying to do the same. Uh, and in many respects, uh, China uh, and the US are, are ahead uh, of Europe. Um, and, and there's a significant need for investing in blockchain, uh, high performance computing, algorithms, so on and so forth. Uh, and not all of that investment can come from the private sector. And that's what I mean about uh, bringing together the contributions of the private sector and the public sector to create the framework for, for growth and genuine uh, advancement in Europe in these frontier technologies. Gentlemen, if we're feeling optimistic, what gives you the greatest hope for the future of Europe? Andreas, to you first. Why well, we talked about it, because we talked about the digitalization, we talked about the sustainability. And uh, I think that these two areas are really uh, topics where the European Union can differentiate uh, itself from the other world regions and uh, take on some leadership, as Simon uh, already said. And this gives me some hope, because especially in the sustainability area, this will be seen by the people, by the European people, because you can, uh, they will adhere. To, to this idea of sustainability. This is almost an easy uh, uh, convincing. 
I personally would hope that uh, we go for more integration. Uh, uh, and uh, I think the only possibility or the only area where we could uh, go not in a short term, certainly not, but maybe in a medium uh, term uh, to more integration would be a European army. Uh, although, also with uh, the Brexit, we moved a step forward <laughs> to a European army because uh, we lost uh, some uh, opponent, uh, strong opponent, uh, towards this European army. And I think symbolically to have a common defense and uh, security strategy would be kind of in the same area as the Euro, uh, kind of as the Schengen uh, Agreement, and uh, just uh, uh, move forward to greater inter European integration, which I'm a complete support. Simon, reasons to be cheerful? An EU army? Well, I'm going to steer off that particular uh, subject. It's always been a sensitive one for, for, for the Brits. Um, but I, I think the, the, the balance of sort of integration and diversity uh, that Europe has always represented um, will continue to serve us well. Uh, it's always hard to get that balance right, and the balance changes of course, at different points and at different times. But I think that balance continues to exist and it will continue to serve us well. Uh, and it's something that gives Europe an advantage over other regions, I'm, I may say. But I think fundamentally for me, Matt, those European values um, that, we, that we tend to identify, the universals, if you like, of human dignity, freedom, democracy, equality, rule of law, respect for human rights, these are exactly the values the world needs right now uh, that need to be, uh, in, in some respects, reinstated and reprioritized in a post-Trumpian, uh, post-pandemic era. And I'm absolutely sure the Europeans together and with their friends and partners will play a significant leadership role in that, in that process and journey. What a wonderful way to end. My thanks to my guests, Simon Mercado, Dean of ESCP London, and Andreas Kaplan, the newly appointed Dean of ESC Paris, and also the Dean of ESCP Berlin. Keep your eye on thechoice.org for a steady flow of thought-provoking podcasts, articles, and more on the business issues that matter. Thanks for listening.